The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is scientist Marie Claire Arietta, PhD. Uh, Marie is author. Her new book is. We're going to be talking about her new book today, which is "Let Them Eat Dirt: Saving Your Child from an Oversanitized World." In the 150 years since we discovered that microbes can cause infectious diseases, we've battled to keep them at bay. But a recent explosion of scientific knowledge has led to undeniable evidence that early exposure to these organisms is beneficial to our children's well-being. It turns out that our current emphasis on hypercleanliness and poor diets are taking a toll on our children's lifelong health. Welcome to the show, uh, Maria. Thank you. Marie- Yes, Marie Claire. Well, okay, this is, uh, I guess this is, in certain ways, this is kind of literally earth-shattering news, because I think one of the things particularly that most new parents are always concerned with is uh, keeping their babies clean, keeping their kids clean. But that, as you're saying, in your, as you describe in your book, uh, this is something that perhaps we shouldn't be doing, that is more detrimental to their health than healthy. Well, yes, to some degree. I mean, we should still keep what we know are the... Uh, you know, the well-thought and well-founded forms of hygiene, and, and this does not mean to not keep a, a baby clean, is uh, probably not to, to keep a baby hyper-clean, not to um, go above and beyond and cleaning every surface that a baby might touch uh, throughout his or her first year of life. So I think what this book calls on is to try and unlearn these modern habits to be cleaning ourselves and our babies throughout the day um, without a reason. So yes, if you have been in a place that, you know, that's too crowded, it makes sense to wash your hands. Um, if, if you, you know, if you just use the washroom, if you are about to eat, all those things that we've always learned as basic hygiene, those still apply because those we know are effective in preventing disease. And disease is still something we want to prevent. What we're talking about is, is these modern tendencies. For example, if you look at every other diaper bag nowadays, you will see that they have the gel sanitizer hanging from their, them. And they would be applied to, to babies and, and toddlers right after playing in the playground just because. And not necessarily because the, 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 the child is about to eat, but just because the, the child looks dirty. Uh, whereas that dirt does not really equal disease. But what so, you're saying well, we, is, let's get back. I want to really kind of maybe start out with the scientific evidence, because there is yes. scientific evidence that we need certain microbes, as I understand Very it, in so. our bodies, yes. don't we? And those are good and they're protective. And what we're doing by, as you refer to as hyper-cleanliness, we're getting rid of those. And they have a protective, uh, they have a purpose, I guess, uh, for us yes. in terms of our health. 
So let's, they do, yeah. yeah. And I mean, uh, they definitely do. And as you well say, this is very much based on, on some groundbreaking scientific work that has been coming out for the past five or 10 years. So this is new stuff. And this is asking us to change some of our habits, including cleanliness, because of these microbes being so, so important. Cleanliness, however, is just one aspect of it. And what we also do with the book is, is try to teach the reader where else microbes come from uh, in babies. So we know that they come from birth. They also come from breast milk. Breast milk is not sterile. It comes with microbes. And it also comes, you know, with these uh, just letting go of, of the hyper-cleanliness tendencies that, that we have and allowing our, our kids to be kids and, and for them to play with dirt. And the reason is, Catherine, that uh, we now know that we rely on microbes for a lot more than we used to think. We used to think that microbes do a little bit of digestion here and there, that they help making some vitamins, but now we know that it go- goes beyond that. So microbes finish the, the training of our immune system, uh, and without it, the immune system becomes really sloppy. But not only that, microbes also help us regulate our metabolism. And what that means is that literally microbes help decide how calories are stored or burned in the body. So they help us regulate weight. And microbes, we also know, they help in brain development as well. So we didn't know about this. And now we're knowing that not only are they involved in these very important tasks, but the critical, the most critical time during which they're active doing these things is early in life. Uh, so this is the time when we need to learn more about microbes and how our practices, our parents, affect this exposure to microbes. So microbes are good. We have to keep the white microbes balanced. Not, and what we're tending to do by this hypercleanliness is kind of getting the balance off so that we don't have the good mi- microbes to protect us from Diseases, as you describe in your book, like diabetes, obesity, asthma, and other chronic conditions. And it starts, right. it really starts, I think in the book you talk, it's, it starts in utero, and then it gets, even when you, as I understand it, when you go through, when uh, the baby goes through the birth canal, there's lots of good microbes, bacteria that the baby need, that the baby has the opportunity to be exposed to, which helps them to strengthen their immune system. Yeah, so what we're learning now, and to me it's fascinating to, to just to see how nature works so smartly, even from the microbes' point of view. So what happens during pregnancy is that our microbes towards the end of pregnancy change, and uh, not just our gut microbes, but also our vaginal microbes. And what we think now is happening is that these microbes change because when the baby is coming out, the baby is coming out through the vagina, which of course has a lot of microbes. Baby comes in contact often with fecal secretion, which of course sounds really yucky, but what's happening with this change of microbes toward the end of pregnancy is that the pregnant mom harvests the right microbes to pass on to the baby. And when I say the right microbes, those are the microbes that are going to be in charge of performing the critical tasks that I was talking about, you know, the immune system, the metabolism, all those things. Um, so when the other thing that may happen during pregnancy, because I was telling that the microbes can help uh, decide how to burn and store calories, if we gain a ton of weight towards the end of pregnancy, we're supposed to gain weight, but if we gain a lot more weight than what's considered healthy, what we are doing is that we may harvest 
microbes that are really good at uh, harvesting energy, and those are called obesogenic microbes. Those are microbes that have been associated with obese people. And um, what we're learning now is that by gaining a ton of weight and harvesting these microbes, we can pass them on to the, the we can pass them to the baby at birth, and um, increase the chances of that baby to have trouble managing weight and later becoming obese because of the microbes. And these are studies that are pretty solid. You know, they, they've controlled for other, what we call confounding variables, like the weight of the mom uh, before pregnancy and diet and, and all of all other things. It just seems that microbes make a lot more decisions than what we thought of. And this can come even from before birth. Birth, of course, is really important because if we're born vaginally, like I was saying, we're going to get exposed to all those microbes. But if we're born via C-section, we do not get that exposure. Yeah. So what does this say for, and I don't know the exact statistics, but I think, isn't it, and I don't know if it's this high, but is it one third of babies are born by C-section for reasons that are not necessarily medical, reasons just because they want the to be sure of what the day is and the time is that the baby is born. And so by doing that, you are really depriving your baby of these healthy microbes. Uh, is it one-third of babies in the United States are born uh, by C-section? That's correct. But that includes C-sections that are necessary. And C-sections are, you know, a medical miracle. They are Okay, so what are the ones that aren't ne- necessary? How many are we performing that aren't necessary that would have a negative effect, About- let's say? about 2 out of 10. So what the World Health Organization has established is that uh, C-section rate should be about 10%. That's what's considered, you know, those are the necessary C-sections that should be done, but it's about 30% right now. Uh, But this not only comes from the patient. I mean, there's many health practitioners that that, uh, think, you know what, we're just going to do a uh, a C-section when what is not required. Um, so there, there's many decisions that come into play uh, in a C-section. And, and the last thing that we want to do is to make someone feel guilty because they had to have a C-section or because they decided to have a C-section. Yeah. At the end of the day, there's there, there's more that comes into play than, than uh, the microbes. But we definitely wanted to inform uh, pregnant women about this because this is something we know. I didn't know about this when I was pregnant and uh, knowing how important microbes is, that could have, you know, made me um, make a, a more informed d- decision. So, well, what about doctors what and do? physicians who are delivering these babies? Do they know that, or do they have this information? Or you know, because as you say, some it's do. not always <laughs> some. Some do, some don't. Um, but this is hopefully changing. So this information is coming out of the best scientific journals. There's now really interesting clinical trials in some hospitals in the U.S. And what they're doing is that for C-section babies, when um, when they're born they are now being impregnated with vaginal secretions just to emulate exactly what happens in a natural birth. And again, this may sound a bit off-putting to someone that is listening to this, but one has to take into account that this is exactly what happens to every single baby that is born the natural way. So, And and they've shown using these clinical trials that the microbes in those C-section babies that are impregnated after look similar to babies that are born vaginally. So, those so that's are very some interesting. The so what they so they take the they take the vaginal secretions. The baby is, is delivered by C-section and what rub it over the baby's body. Is that what they do? Yeah, 
that's what they're doing pretty much. Yeah, so they do it this in, in you know, they will put a sterile gauze inside of uh, the vaginal canal and leave it there for a few minutes. And then, you know, using gloved hands and, and doing this properly, then they'll take this gauze full of secretions and they will smear it around the baby. Yeah. All right, so now in we've talked about in utero and and birth, but now breastfeeding. Now, how does that fit into babies being able to keep the balance of microbes in their bodies? Yeah, breastfeeding is better so, than bottle feeding, or it provides more microbes, or how does that work? Yeah, it does. And again, this is something new. We didn't know, but breast milk is not sterile. Breast milk has actually quite a bit of microbes in it. And not only does it have microbes, it has a a component in it, uh, a type of carbohydrate in it that can only be digested by the microbes in the baby's tummy. Meaning that when a mom is breastfeeding his or her baby, she's not only breastfeeding baby, but also the microbes in in the baby. And uh, this, again, is nature kind of showing us another way of populating that developing gut with the right microbes that are carrying out these very important tasks. So we know that breastfed children and also children that are born vaginally, they have not only more balanced microbes, but they have a reduced risk to develop some of those diseases that we talk about in the book, asthma, allergies, obesity, diabetes, and so on. So these are very early ways that our feeding methods and our birth methods are are sort of assuring that we get the right kind of microbes from the get-go. I have a a couple, uh, actually two or three young friends who take breast milk who are nursing their babies, and when the baby uh, gets a a cut or they take the breast milk and rub it on the cut because they say that's good for it and it, it, it enhances the healing process... I've never heard about that, and I don't. I don't think I've You're heard about it. You're not going to comment on it, yeah. Well, I just don't know, right? Yeah. I just don't know. I've never heard of that. So we're talking about breast, okay, breastfeeding, and uh, th- then what comes next, though? It seems to me that uh, then you, it's interesting because I'll watch young mothers with their babies, and they are. It appears to be very concerned with cleanliness and antibacterial stuff and, you know, and all those kinds of things. And then you'll see them, the toddlers are playing on the floor, and I'm assuming that this is okay, uh, and really sucking up the dirt. I mean, they are in public places and picking up their binkies or whatever they call them and putting them in their mouth after they've fallen on the sidewalk. Is this okay? (laughs) Well, it depends on where this is happening. But you point to something really interesting, and that is just natural toddler, you know, infant behavior. It seems that we do not need to do anything. Kids will find the fastest and the best way to get dirty. If you just turn around your head, this is what they're doing. And what we think is that this is normal behavior for them to get even more populated with microbes. That does not mean that we should just get them, get into whatever, because at the end of the day, not all dirt is created equal. If you're out, you know, in the countryside or in the park, it's fine to let your kid put safe objects into his or her mouth. This may include rocks or, you know, sticks or something that is, of course, not a choking hazard, uh, that's, that's probably fine. That kind of dirt is fine. However, it's not the same thing if you let your child crawl in a very crowded food court in a shopping mall. And the reason is that the risk of disease 
is pretty high in a shopping mall versus um, a playground or, or just being out in the countryside. So this is what we need to keep um, into mind. What is the risk of, of disease in one place versus the other? This is what we try to do with the book to try and, 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 and teach people how to assess that risk. But uh, in a nutshell, it really depends on where you are and how crowded the, play, the place is. So for example, a uh, a uh, subway station, not a good place to let your kid crawl around and stick things into their mouth. And the same thing if an object falls, if their pacifier falls in a subway station, it's probably a good idea to wash it, which is regular soap and water before the kid put, puts it back into the mouth. But it's totally fine if the pacifier falls in your house. Because is this you know, we'll is it there. true? That, well, you talk about in your house, and, and I, I yes, I want to kind of uh, talk more about that because I have heard, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong. But when you say bring a baby home from the hospital, or you have your other kids and the toddlers, if you're in your own house with your own family, you develop your own set of germs, which the child or the baby gets is is resistant to or in in a good way and that that it is more okay to let the baby uh crawl on the on your floor in your house rather than in the subway station or at the bus station and uh the parents and the siblings and people who are part of your household can kiss and touch the baby in a when it may not as be as healthy if it's in another household or in another public place well, definitely, you know, familiar people are going to bring familiar microbes. That's true. However, that doesn't mean that if the older brother or sister is sick, you should allow for kisses because, you know, that's a disease issue and, and you don't want to give a cold, especially to a very young baby. Um, whether it's other people, you know what, it hasn't been shown that other people will just bring random diseases. It's all about whether the person is is sick or not. Um, so no, the, in fact, there hasn't been shown that, that you should keep, um, you know, have extended family members away from your baby. I think one of the things that we've learned is, is uh, uh, that is recommended is to just wash your hands with regular soap and water before you handle a child. But humans are social animals. Let's remember that we used to not live in just a families of four. We used to live in families of 10 right next to our cousins that were another family of 10. So we're used to having that, that big exchange, that social exchange. And to some degree, our, our microbes uh, de- depend on that or are used to that. So no, I don't think that you should be not allowing people that are outside of your household um, touch your baby as long as, of course, they're not sick and as long as they wash their hands before. Uh, We've talked about many, actually, of the do's and don'ts, but I know in your book, specifically, you have the do's and don'ts at the end of each chapter. So so uh, let's take some of the ones that we haven't covered. What are the, if we were to what t- the takeaway from our conversation would be the big do's and the big don'ts because uh, these are the things we want people to obviously you have to make for sure uh, yeah yeah uh, and at the end of the day that's what we wanted to do with the book not just you know teach science but give practical advice so like you're saying at the end of the chapter each chapter there's do's and don'ts we cannot cover them all in this conversation um, a couple ones that I think are really good a dog. So um, having a dog with uh, growing babies um, and children, that decreases the risk of developing allergies and asthma. And they have shown that it's not just anything in the dog, but it's the microbes that the dogs bring in from outside. 
Um, so it has to be apparently a dog that goes outside, not just one of those dogs that stays inside. And also, it's only a dog, but not a cat or other pets. And probably because of the different behaviors between cats and dogs, right? Dogs come and they lick you and they go outside and they get dirty, whereas cats are more indoor creatures, uh, the way they're treated, of course, now. And and, and they come and pet you, but not as much as dogs. Uh, So get a dog if you can. and uh, or you could get a gold. You could uh, get a goldfish, which I did, <laughs> to be on the safe <laughs> side. <laughs> of course, they I always They're find lovely. them dead. And, yeah, They're lovely. <laughs> I don't think they come with microbial benefits, but yeah, right. I love goldfish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and the other thing, Catherine, is antibiotics. Antibiotics are huge. So antibiotics, they are a wonder drug, but they are also a double-edged sword. You need to take them when you're really sick because otherwise you could get really, really, really sick or, or even die. So they save lives. Hopefully they'll continue to save more. But they are a bomb to the microbes in you. Uh, not only are they going to kill the microbes that are causing you trouble, they're going to kill that one and many others. And uh, there's no other factor that's more strongly associated with those diseases that we talked about, allergies, asthma, obesity, than the use of antibiotics in the first year of life or towards the end of pregnancy. I think that best practices have changed in the past, let's say, 20 years uh, since I was raising my boys when they were prescribing antibiotics for everything, even prescribing antibiotics, let's say, if you had an ear infection and they, and, and, it was, or if you even have had a viral infection, which antibiotics oh, don't yeah. help, they would still give you an antibiotic just in case you got a bacterial infection. And I do want to say for young mothers, I mean, my gut reaction, and it was a gut reaction, was I really shouldn't be doing this. So I would kind of hedge, but it was very difficult, especially when it's your t- child, to not give the antibiotic. If it's of yourself, course. okay, you can do it. But, you know, it's not yeah. easy to go against No, the, it's not easy. And yeah. at the end of the day, the message has to come from the doctor. You're supposed to do what the doctor says, right? And they're getting a lot more informed. Um, Doctors now understand that antibiotics do come with consequences and uh, they're they're coming, they're they're becoming a lot more restrictive with their use, but it definitely needs to to come with with more restriction even than what we do now. They're still getting prescribed for a lot of ear infections. Uh, what, what is very common is, is to say, you know what, um, I don't think it's bacterial, um, but uh, I'll still give you the prescription and if you feel like it, give them the antibiotics by tomorrow. Whereas the, the better approach that some pediatricians are following now is to say, you know what, let's manage the pain for 24 or 48 hours. If it gets better, like almost all your infections do on their own, it was viral. If not, let's prescribe an antibiotic. Um, but some doctors don't do that for many reasons. So, so we, we I need think to one of the and I think one of the reasons is ex- unfortunately is expediency because they really don't want to see you back there again. It takes too much sure. time, and the yeah. mother's going to call up and say, "I'm not sure if he is better, or should I bring him yeah. in again?" And they don't want to deal. It's inconvenient. I mean, inconvenient. It's really inconvenient. It's yeah. Really inconvenient. Totally. yeah. yeah. Well, uh, so, uh, we have a so, yeah. We have yeah. a few minutes less. So I mean, I was going to ask you about probiotics. If you think there's something more important to talk about than that, let's do it because we're no. Getting, that was yeah. exactly what I was going to go to. Oh, next. okay. Great. So probiotics, you should take them with antibiotics and after. The issue with probiotics is that half of them or more don't work. 
they're not regulated, so we don't know if if you know they will work or not. And and it's a big issue because you go as a you know as a patient into a drugstore and you don't know what to pick. What we did because there's some pretty good products out there um, in our website, which is letthemeatdirt.com, we created a, a link to a wonderful resource that summarizes all the probiotic products that have been properly tested in randomized clinical trials for, you know, the pediatric population, for the adult population, and for different diseases so that we can actually understand which ones have been tested from the ones that haven't. And we recommend people that, to go there. Yeah, that's very helpful because that's a question that comes up. It's coming up more and more. I mean, I think uh, probably a few years ago, people weren't even aware of the probiotics, but now they are and really not knowing where to get that information. So your your book is well, is really, really helpful. I mean, your book is really a great guide. It's very, it's easy reading. It's, uh, it's definitely for the lay person, which is what I like about it. And uh, easy Thank reading and also... Yeah, and something you can refer to. Have you received a lot of, I don't know if you would say it would be pushback, but like what about the medical community? Uh, are they acceptable? Because, uh, you know, some Very of much so, yeah. yeah. We were, you know, we, we never... We don't. We never know how that's going to go. But no, there's been really supportive. So it's been reviewed by um, several pediatric groups and, and family doctor groups, and we haven't received any pushback. So uh, at the end of the day, we're pretty mainstream scientists. We we, we read the, the the medical scientific literature that they read as well. So we try to stay really close to the data and uh, not not just you know elaborate on what we think is happening or not. We, we're really Based this on on real science, which is what they do too. So they've been supportive. So they have been supportive. I think sometimes for parents, though, it's difficult. You know, you've been told to do one thing, and yeah. now all of a sudden, so, like your book comes out, and it's based on scientific evidence, scientific fact. And as a parent, particularly maybe, uh, or I was going to say, particularly as a mother, maybe that's not true, but just as a parent, um, you feel guilty. Uh, I, oh, God, why yeah. didn't they tell me this before? What do I do now? I haven't been following yeah. this. So, so can I change and it will make a difference? Or is my kid going to wind up with diabetes, asthma, and obesity, considering what I've just done? Uh, no, well, not necessarily. <laughs> we're, we're talking about risk, right? But yeah, I know the guilt is, is it's, it's a thing. We can always change our ways. We can always unlearn these habits. I mean, these habits aren't even instinctive. Um, if anything, it's almost a, a good news to tell a really busy mom with three kids, uh, slow down with all the cleaning, right? Uh, yeah. Especially when you give some, some scientific background to, to that message. So what we hope is that, that people start unlearning all these unnecessary and, and detrimental habits and, and that, that we hopefully encourage a small societal change in this regard. I'm sure this is not going to be the, the last message that you hear in this. It might be the, the first one to the lay audience, but there will be more coming for sure. Yeah, and you can also save on your cleaning bills. <laughs> you don't have to buy no all those kidding. cleaning products. No and, <laughs> Yeah. And... Uh, uh, and the other thing is, and, and uh, we only have about a minute left, but I mean, I think the other thing is uh, a lot of these cleaning products that you're using supposedly to keep your kid hyper clean uh, are very toxic in and of themselves. And uh, very often so. people can't afford or don't afford the more expensive products that don't have all like these toxic kinds of chemicals to get rid of every single germ in your house, which is yeah, not a good thing. For sure. And we talk about that in the book. There's some of that in the website as well. Uh, you know, we should really 
forget about bleach. We're not in a hospital or we don't really need bleach. Um, even for cleaning bathrooms, bleach is a, is a super strong uh, cleaning product that can be toxic and it's just not necessary. It doesn't, it's not going to reduce the chances of your child not getting sick. Um, so things like that we should also unlearn. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Lots of good information. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and uh, we can go to LetThemEatDirt.com. The name of the book is Let Them Eat Dirt, Saving Your Child from an Over-Sanitized World. Marie Claire Arietta. thank you. We're going to take a thank short you. break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is millennial expert on employment, I guess he would be called a millennial workplace expert, Adam Smiley Poswalski. His new book is The Quarter-Life Breakthrough, Invent Your Own Path, Find Meaningful Work, and Build Up a Life That Matters. Well, on paper, the rest of the world, uh, Adam says, and I guess he wants to be called, as I understand it, Adam, you want to be called Smiley, uh, position he were in the Peace Corps headquarters in Washington, D.C., seemed like the perfect job. Uh, you traveled, got to sit in on senior staff meetings, had great pay and top health care benefits with promotion potential and long-term job security. Everything was perfect, but except for one thing, one actually very important thing, you were miserable. So let's start with that. You were miserable. You had a job. Sounds like it was a great job, good pay, all of those kinds of things. You're, what, 28 years old, 27 years old, but it wasn't working for you. Why? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I think this is a common um, a common thing a lot of uh, millennials or, you know, 20 and 30-somethings are facing these days where you have a job that on paper seems to be good. Your business card looks good. Your parents are impressed. You've checked that so-called box of 
getting a job and maybe even a good job, but you still don't know kind of who you are and what you're actually looking for. And I think increasingly this is something that my generation is really looking for, the sense of meaningful work and purpose in the workplace. Um, if you look at a lot of the data, um, according to Gallup, 70% of Americans of all ages are disengaged at their jobs. Uh, 70%, that, that's a large number. Um, that number is even higher for younger generations. Uh, One-fifth of those people are so disengaged, they're actively undermining their coworkers' work. So they're literally getting paid by their company to mess things up for that company. And it's a really hard time. So, you know, for, for me personally, um, I, you know, Prescore is a tremendous organization. I work for the federal government. The government obviously does quite a few amazing things. I lived in Washington, D.C. I had a good salary. I had you know, job security. Uh, but it was realizing that this wasn't kind of where I was supposed to be going. And that's something that you only personally can really figure out. And then feeling really guilty um, and bad for wanting to leave because you look around and, you know, this was in the middle of the recession, obviously, uh, several years ago. You see all your friends that can't get a job or that don't have a great job. And you're like, well, this is a pretty good job, but I still know it's not the right fit for me. I know I want to leave and now I feel guilty um, because everyone tells me my job's perfect, but I'm waking up feeling, you know, having trouble sleeping. <laughs> um <laughs> Well, I'm you looking. Know, you know, the title I, of your you have the title of your book, "The Quarter Life Breakthrough: Invent Your Own Path, Find Meaningful Work, and Build a Life That Matters." I'm a, a baby boomer, and I always thought that that's something that we wanted to do as well. And you definitely, especially when you're in your 20s. Uh, so, what would you say the difference is between the millennials, let's say, and the baby boomers? Because those are two great big cohorts uh, in terms of sure. demographics in our country. Uh, and then just one other thing, because kind of the millennials, at least from my generation, kind of have this rap. Well, the millennials, they don't, they just don't want to work. They just want to stay at something right. for a year or two. They're not happy. They want to go, you know, uh, you know, backpacking in uh, at, in Machu Picchu, which I did too. I did that in the seventies, by the way. But anyway, so what is the difference? Yeah, so I think that the truth is that everyone wants meaning in the workplace. If you look at the data, purpose is consistently ranked as one of the number one things that all people are looking for. Um, and a lot of scientific research shows that, that purpose and the kind of sense that your work um, is making a difference um, beyond just your job, that you co- you're contributing to something and your company is contributing to something greater than yourself is really important. So when, you, when we hear kind of in the news, oh, millennials want purpose, um, I think I, I like to push back and be like, all people want purpose. Um, but the truth is that there's a lot of things happening right now in the current workplace that are a little bit different than the baby boomer generation. And we see this with rapid changes in technology, um, kind of a much more flexible experimentational work, workplace. Um, currently, over 30% of the American workforce is freelance. That's 53 million Americans. Um, That number is expected to be 60 million in the next five to 10 years. Um, You know, the average job tenure of a millennial is about every two to three years. So you hear about the millennial job hoppers, but the average tenure of someone from any demographic, whether it's uh, millennials, Gen Xers, or baby boomers, so anyone over the age of 25 is just about five years, which isn't that long either. So, you know, we hear about the millennial job hoppers, but really we're all kind of job hoppers at this point basically due to the job market, uh, globalization, advances in technology. Um, the U.S. Department of Labor has stated that 65% of today's kids that are in elementary school 
are going to be working jobs that haven't been invented yet. All right, so we're job hoppers. I'll get uh, all of us now because, as you say, the culture has changed, technology has changed, jobs have changed. Fine, okay. So, but what? But I think one the premise of your book, or one of the premises of your book, is that given that there are still people, seventy percent of the population of the millennials are disengaged at their jobs. They don't find them purposeful, but yet for what are the reasons? For whatever the reason is, and you seem to know the reasons, like. They don't leave or they'll stay even for those two years or three years or whatever it is. They're afraid to leave the job that they hate they, they, or that they dislike. And they're, it's difficult for them to go out and, as you say, be, find a job that they feel passionate about or do something that they feel passionate about. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the reasons there is that, you know, millennials, um, more and more the, 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 the traditional signposts of success that were available to previous generations, um, having a secure job, rising up this corporate ladder, um, knowing that your job is going to be around for 15 or 20 years, um, you know, marriage, home ownership, being able to buy, afford a house in a, in a city that you want to live in are increasingly not available to this generation. Um, the economics, if you look at it, just aren't favorable to us. Um, you really can't buy a house in most markets where... Um, a lot of um, young people, specifically in, in job-heavy markets, want to live. So then when you can't do that, um, and you know that you, you know, we kind of saw the social contract erode in the recession of, hey, you worked here for 30 years, stay at this company, you'll get your pension. Well, we saw that kind of blow up <laughs> in 2008. Uh, people lost their pensions overnight. You kind of start to question what it is you're doing and where you're going. So if you're not going to that, if you're not going to kind of retirement and having it all figured out at the age of 65 and you can't buy a house, maybe you start to to prioritize um, kind of your current state of meaning. And so what did you do? For. How did you do it? Because I'm assuming and, you and there's did. Not, and, and then to get to, there's not really any, there's very few guides of how to do that. So because you still need to eat and you still need to make <laughs> a living and the average college student is graduating with $30,000 of student debt. So you have to figure that out. So that's why this book exists, is to kind of have a, have a playbook, have a guide, have a companion, have a sense of encouragement for going about this process. Yeah. I listened to you on your TEDx talk, which was great. And one of the things you said, which kind of struck me was, and I, and I, I think this is a real issue, that when you, now this is the age of, uh, well, obviously, social media. So, and particularly Facebook, and I know now Facebook really is, what, for old people? But uh, you, you <laughs> go, <laughs> you and but now you're over 30, so maybe you're... I still you're, use Facebook. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but so you said, you know, don't look... At, you you want to get out of your... You're not satisfied with what you're doing, but one of the problems we have is you go on Facebook and everybody looks like they couldn't be happier. Even if they're miserable, they create these Facebook pages and you're sitting there thinking, oh my God, my life is... I can't compete with that. Or I can't compete with my college roommate who you, I think who's getting his MBA or law degree or whatever it is. And when you set yourself up that way, it really kind of... It, you stagnate. It kind of paralyzes you. You're you don't know what to do, and and feeling bad about yourself. I think that I think that's a good point. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I think that you know. So we have this all of these issues, like kind of the confluence of all these issues. Social media is kind of something that well, everyone is addicted to, and everyone is using now. But of course, our generation is spending so much time on social media. So you're trying to figure out your life. You're trying to make all these questions. And then you're literally on for these, 
platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, um, and even more, um, comparing yourself to others and, and experiencing what I call in the book FOMO, um, you know, fear of missing out. And you're always, you know, so even if you have a good job, like say you're working at a good company and then you see your friend that started her own business or is moving to, as you said, Machu Picchu or wherever it is, how do you, how can you be content? So I think that that's another element there of, you know, when we even think about meaning and think about meaningful work, we have to kind of come up with those definitions ourselves. We have to have that personal reflection Otherwise, we're, we're doomed because we're constantly going to be comparing ourselves to others. And, you know, I, I, I talk about in the book how even if you're doing a great job, even if you're really confident in what it is you're doing, you will go on social media and you'll still be jealous. <laughs> you know, it's one thing if you get on there when you're at all in a period of depression or figuring out or anxiety. And, you know, if you look at the data about anxiety in our generation, um, we hear a lot of positives about millennials, but the truth is actually we're one of we're very anxiety prone and and rates and the of depression. Baby, you're and, anxiety prone, and we're uh, the baby boomers are depressed. So <laughs> yeah, um, and I think social media and technology is certainly uh, a factor there. I think you know we're increasingly quote unquote connected because we with the, we, you know we're on our phones all day. We're connected to the whole world and friends everywhere, and we can send them messages and videos and whatever. But we actually. Are, are void of, um, of, of personal contact, of one-on-one interaction. And we don't know how to talk to people anymore and actually um, go deep. And one of the things I talk about in my book that I think is really important for people um, going through this is um, building a community and, and finding believers and actually surrounding yourself. And I mean physically surrounding yourself, not just on LinkedIn, um, physically surrounding yourself with people that share similar interests and values that are up to similar things that ha- are working on projects that, you know, interest groups, whether it's, you know, women in tech or designers um, or artists or writers or whatever it is that you care about kind of finding these people in real life and spending time with them, not just your friends, not just going to a bar with your friends, but actually spending time with the people that can take you to the next level. Cause I think that that is, uh, especially increasingly in, in this market, uh, what separates people that are succeeding from not is really people that have built those dynamic, uh, diverse, in-person networks. I think that's true. And I think what happens is often you get kind of settled in and you have people who are telling you, you better stay at your job. You know, you have a good salary, you're doing okay, your boss likes you, you know, why move, especially in this sort of unstable economy, not a good thing to do. So what you're saying is you say in the book, and you just said, don't do that, surround yourself with people who are encouraging, encourage you to do what you want to do, follow your passion, all of those kinds of things. I, I think that's really a that's good advice. That's a good idea. Um, yeah, and, and not just encourage, but can actually support. You know, support. So support is the word. Yeah. Um, can connect you to the right people. Um, you know, have have had experience or know people with experience that have already walked, You know, been down the path a little bit further than you. So those types of people. Well, what about parents? What happens when you you surround yourself with those kinds of people? You're 27, 28 years old. Uh, you want to do all of those kind those things that you suggest in the book. But what about the people who have been supporting you and they say, don't do it, or you get a lot of, of pushback and you get a lot of like, this is not the thing to do. You really need to go to law. I mean, I, Howard Stern always talks about his, his father keeps telling him, you, st- you know, you st- you still, you sure you still don't want to go to law school? I mean, it's like that was sort of the, 
<laughs> mantra of that yeah. era. But uh, what do you do when you sort of you have those kinds of suggestions in year? Maybe you better go to grad school or stay with your job. Right. And Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, my, I love my parents. They're very, very loving and supportive parents. But, you know, you have to think about from the role of a parent. The role of a parent is to make sure that you're okay. Um, it's, it's your role to figure out what it is you want to do with your life, not your parents, um, right? And your parents' role really is to, is to make sure you're safe, to make sure that you have a roof over your head, um, that you've got a job, that you're, you're, you know, you're, you, you're going to be fed, that you're taking care of yourself and anyone around you. Um, that other stuff is really on you. Um, it's, it, it's your, it, that, that's your, that's kind of what it means really to be an adult is one of the things about becoming an adult is answering those questions for yourself and to be able to push back and kind of be, be able to kind of say, yeah, you want me to go to law school, but I have no interest in going to law school. Um, cause you know, I, I think we all have met people that went to law school or, or grad school or whatever because their parents did. Right, they became a lawyer because their father was a lawyer, and that's a really crappy reason to spend a hundred thousand dollars on a program <laughs> and go into debt. Now, if you want to go to law school because you really want to study law um, and you want to be an attorney, or you want to use the law to help people that are marginalized in society, or and defend people that need it, great, awesome. You should go to law school, but don't go just because your parents, when you go home. Um, are telling you, hey, what are, what are you doing? At, you know, what are you doing in New York? What are you doing every day? Um, that's that's not a good reason to go. And, well, one uh, of the things you talk about, I mean, the millennials. You, I, what you're saying is, you know, you have to have a purpose. You have to be passionate about your purpose. Do it now and do it in the context of the work that you choose. I think that people in their 50s and 60s very often who went to law school and practiced law, we'll take that as an example for 20 years, then they retire at age 55 or whenever, and then they end up volunteering for those jobs that they were are really passionate about, that, you know, teaching and uh, social work kinds of things. And, and, and instead of having that, hat, let's say, be a profession in the beginning, they do it later on. Um, so eventually... Your suge- I guess what you're saying is plays out, but you're, you're saying we, as millennials, you need to really know what you want to do, be passionate about it, and, and start out and do it in the beginning. Where did, I have to ask you, where did you go to college? I went to Wesleyan University. It's a liberal arts school in Connecticut. In Connecticut, yes, I know. Um, and you graduated from Wesleyan, and then what did you do? Because I want to, you know, let's talk about how you were able to do this for yourself. Yes. Um, so I've had, uh, I call this in the book, my wandering journey <laughs> because <laughs> I've done quite a few different things. I was, I actually studied film, film studies in college. Wesleyan has a very renowned film program. Um, so I was really interested in documentary and, um, working in film. So I moved to New York city, of course. Um, I grew up on the East coast. I moved to New York city and I started working in the film industry for a couple of years. Um, as a location scout, camera assistant, and then a producer on a couple short films. Um, so I worked in New York and kind of saw what that was like. It's a very, anyone that's worked in the film industry um, knows it's a very arduous <laughs> path. Um, lots of long hours, big sets, trucks. Um, and I just kind of found that the lifestyle wasn't, was pretty unhealthy and wasn't right for me. Um, I uh, got involved in the Obama campaign in 2008. I worked as a field organizer and in Indiana, actually, registering people to vote and then kind of doing get-out-the-vote efforts for a very small town in Indiana. 
Um, and then that kind of got me into the political sphere. So I moved to Washington, D.C., and then ended up working for the Peace Corps. Um, and um, was kind of on this international development track. Um, and, you know, once you get in government, if, if you kind of play the cards right, it's pretty, you, you can use, you can kind of stay, right? If you want to, you get non-competitive eligibility, you're able to kind the of... The government never that. fires you or not... <laughs> Government doesn't fire anyone, really, <laughs> to be <laughs> they honest. Let you stay, yeah. um, to be perfectly honest, I think that's true, and actually it's a big problem. <laughs> I think the government needs more turnover. Um, maybe some companies need less because they're just so volatile, but the U.S. government needs more. There's just so many people there that get stuck and are just kind of riding out their retirement um, because it's easy and, and it's, they pay pretty well. I think that that's a huge problem. I think there should be more... Um, pay for performance in government. I think people should be um, fired that aren't working. That's not to say that people shouldn't be, their jobs shouldn't be protected, but I think a lot of people are getting off by not doing much work. Yeah. Um, the, the kind of the traditional, like, get in at 901 and leave at 459 person, there's a lot of those in government. Um, and those people know who they are. And then yeah. the people that are actually really working really hard and doing amazing things, of which there are many, um, are kind of feel slighted. Um, That's your next book. Yeah, (laughs) that would be a great book, actually. That would be a great Um, book, yeah. Because we we really do need more young, innovative, fresh, not just young, but just people that are innovative and excited and have that kind of change mindset working in federal government. Um, We need those types of people, as as we all have seen. You know, this uh, you can see even with this election cycle. um, We need people that are smart and creative, they're going to say the unpopular thing that are going to do different things in government. Um, but you know, the problem is for a lot of young people, you know, it's just such an oppressive work environment. There's so much bureaucracy, things don't get done. Um, one of the things that a lot of data shows millennials are looking for in the, in the workplace is things to happen quickly. <laughs> we are not a generation uh, known for our patience, um, which is a problem, but it's, you know, that's not exactly how government works. It takes, you know, many months and years for things to happen. Well, there has um, to be a balance, so yeah. not an all or nothing. Right. Like you stay there till you die or you get out of there in a week. So, I mean, there, yeah, right. there does have to, and, you know, you brought it up. So I'm going to ask you because we don't have a lot of time left, but uh, because you are a millennial and that, that happens to be one of the, we're talking about it, millennials in reference to the election. Uh, give me your take on that. Um, when it was an election, yeah, great question. Um, we're hearing a lot about this now. Um, you know, I think that basically, you know, if you look, uh, millennials are, are very interested in social change, are, are very interested, um, are much more progressive. Um, obviously, this is a generation that's growing up with a lot more diversity. Um, people around them that, are, that speak different languages, that are from different places, so I think that they're much more um, welcoming of people of different cultures. Um, and, but I think a lot of millennials have been turned off by the, the tenor and the kind of backwards nature of, of this election cycle. Um, but I'm still hoping that they get out to vote and stop the monstrosity that is Mr. Trump from continuing to be part of our American political <laughs> system. Um, Well, my question is, you know, how do you think that happened? And do you think that the millennials could have had an impact in perhaps preventing a Donald Trump from becoming the 
uh, candidate for the Republican Party? I mean, where do the where do they fit into that in terms of their own responsibility? I think that they're, they 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 will take a stand and we'll see. That, I mean, millennials obviously have voted in overwhelmingly in overwhelmingly favorable numbers for Barack Obama in two thousand eight. Um, a lot of the Bernie Sanders campaign was kind of run and supported by young people. Um, and I think that, 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 that millennials actually don't support Hillary in, in, in high numbers, which is interesting. Um, but I think that they're looking for a departure from politics as usual, um, progressive, much more progressive. Um, I think you're seeing millennials supporting kind of these social movements, whether it's um, Black Lives Matter, um, kind of, you know, much more social justice heavy um, climate movement, um, the dreamers and immigration rights movement. Um, so I think that these, these are the issues that millennials care about. I mean, if, you know, in our generation, Spanish is going to become, um, you know, the U S is going to become the, the, the most uh, Spanish has become, you know, spoken so heavily in, in the United States. Um, and I think that the majority of millennials embrace that shift and that culture shift that is the Trump campaign is like resisting. You know, I think that you're seeing the Republican Party move in the exact opposite direction of the, what the average millennial wants for this world, which is more inclusion, more diversity, more acceptance, more empathy, um, more, more rights for people. And, you know, I, shame on the Republican Party for kind of moving in a direction where they're trying to shut people out. Because I think right now, this is a generation that is now the majority, the, it's the most populated uh, demographic in the U.S. and will make up, according to some studies, in 10 years, 75% of the workforce. <laughs> well, Adam, um, you know, uh, we have like 30 seconds to go, but that is really a good message. I think a really good message to sort of end the show with, So, which is what we're going to have to do. Vote. Right? <laughs> go vote. Yeah. <laughs> that's my message to millennials. Go that's vote. your message. You know that's you, Adam you, Smiley. Kozwalski's message to the millennials. And if you want more messaging, you can read, get his book, uh, The Quarter Life Breakthrough, Invent Your Own Path, Find Meaningful Work, and Build a Life That Matters, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere, I assume. Thanks so much, Adam Smiley, for being on the show this morning. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, great to have you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Uh, we have to say goodbye. Uh, hope you enjoyed this show. Uh, have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 